Ding. <clears throat> Congratulations, making it through another day, almost. Um, I loved that Mark last evening described the Four Noble Truths as uh, the good news. And I was thinking about that and was thinking about the, the good news that it somehow implicit in what is held in the Four Noble Truths is there is happiness. Of course, we often have a confused understanding of what happiness is. It's not necessarily a good mood. That's not so reliable. But he, he reminded us that there is the possibility of happiness, the happiness of peace, of freedom. And there are... Th- certain causes for, that bring about happiness and certain causes that obscure this happiness. And there is a, a path that uh, helps reveal to us, again, this capacity that we have for happiness. I'd like to continue on the theme of the good news For me, the good news is, I'll entitle it, You Are Not a Problem to be Solved. Another way of saying that is, you're not what you think. As I say that, I I experience a kind of silence, you know, in between the words. And perhaps you experience the silence in between the words. And I imagine that in the silence in between the words, you can't find too many problems. There is something in this gap between the last thought we had about ourselves and before the next one comes. There's something about that moment that can reveal to us the good news of what we are. As I, from my own experience and fairly large sample size, most of the time when I've asked people what you experience after your last thought has stopped and before the next one comes, in this moment where we're not in some ways looking ahead, not looking back, not constructing any version of ourselves when we're just here. Most of the anecdotes, most of the times I've asked that question, people say, and maybe this resonates with you or not, they say, after my last thought, before my next one, when I'm here, not defined by a thought about myself. I'm peaceful. I feel sufficient. I feel filled with everything. I feel nothing lacking. I feel like everything's been given. I feel like nothing's wrong with me. That's what we discover when we touch ourselves more intimately. In real time. And all the training that we've been doing here is to help us to some degree see the difference between the versions of ourselves that play through our minds 
that are as changeable as the wind. They change according to whoever we're with, as we were talking about this morning. The difference between the version of ourselves that plays in our mind that's innocently based on our conditioning, so it's, all, it's inevitable that we, that we have this conditioned mind, but the difference between that, which in some ways is, the, is a second-hand version of ourselves, it's a conceptual version of ourselves. It's different than the direct experience of ourselves in real time. And we want you, with all our hearts, to touch into that direct experience of yourself, to break the stream of distress that makes you believe that what and who you are is that changeable version of yourself that plays in your mind, what the Buddha called self-view, otherwise known as Sakaya Ditti, for the Pali, for those of you who are interested. Self-view. A view of yourself is not yourself. It's a view. It's a point of reference. It's a place that we operate from that isn't, that is, because it's a view, it is not something that you can make secure. I was thinking about that question today. I don't know your name. Natalia's question about how do I find stability or is it possible to come to where even when I go to places where I get triggered or something happens, can I come to that place where I no longer have any reactions? And what I think Natalia is pointing to is that we show up in so many different circumstances and depending on the conditioned relationship we may have with the, the community we're with, the person we're with, the role that we're playing, we, depending on that situation, we, we in, in some ways inhabit or incarnate into a version of ourselves that's, that's conditioned to show up in that moment. Now, because that, con- that version of us is conditioned, it's temporary. It, isn't, it cannot, as Mark was saying last night, it can't define us, or somebody was saying, it can't define us. And so, inherently, we are blown to some degree by the winds of vulnerability, of circumstances. You know, and, and today when I was thinking about that question and wanting to speak to the vulnerability of this self-view, of this identity. I was, I was thinking about a, a, I mentioned it the first night of the retreat, and I'll borrow Bonnie's uh, characterization or idea of what we are as teachers. She, she used the phrase, sage on the stage. And when she used it last year, I got a huge chuckle and realized that in some ways, here I'm the sage on the stage. I serve and function in this role of teacher and people reflect back to me the, the valuing of that role. And of course there's praise and blame and I can be shaken by somebody who says, who do you think you are? But by and large, I'm the sage on the stage and I can, I can get a lot of uh, narcissistic satisfaction from, from inhabiting that role. But then, I go home. (laughs) And when I go home, most of the time, someone says hello. No, that sounds really sad. (laughs) (laughs) But my daughter sees me, and half the time she doesn't say hello. I've told this story before, but uh, in the, you know, about six months ago, I said, you know, it's nice if somebody walks into the room to say hello, for you to say hello. And she says, nobody does that anymore. 
But needless to say, the sage on the stage dissolves into the, into the deflation of being just regular dad, which is itself its own identity, which can become a trap, a source of stress. And it's interesting if we are ever in conflict, once, if I start holding on too tightly to the role of dad, she just, you know, swats me away. But if I come to her empty of that role, but just as a, of course, I'm, I am her dad, but if I just come to her open, empty, much different result. But I'm saying this because these identities, these views of ourselves that are based on our role and our gender and our orientation and our race and our uh, historical religion or community or um, trauma or whatever it is, all of these very innocent, appropriate, functional identities, if we put misplaced faith in them, in other words, if we identify with them, if we think that it's possible through one of these identities to become secure, to have a secure identity, we will, um, we will be upset. And at the heart of the Buddha's teaching was, was his recognition that anything that we identify with as me or mine or I will become a source of suffering. And in fact, one of his most famous teachings, simple teaching, pith teaching was nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard the whole teaching. It's really quite simple in a way. Not easy. He said whoever has heard this teaching has heard the entire teaching. Whoever puts this teaching to practice has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever has realized the fruit of this teaching has realized the, the happiness that is available to each of us as our natural state. State of freedom. So you notice in this, maybe you noticed in this passage that the Buddha did not say, get rid of the idea of self. Even though we all know that absent any view of ourself, after the last view has passed and before the next one comes, you know, we're just present, doing what we're doing, mindful, just eating when we're eating, walking when we're walking. That's really one of the little secrets in the moments of mindfulness. We're not building a house of identity in those moments. We're actually having, we have the opportunity to have countless moments where we're not defined by uh, an identity that's based on the past. Where we're free to be as we are, where we are, doing what we're doing. Of course, the idea of being without that scares us. But we actually do it every moment that we're fully present. As I say those words, I see that, at least to me, you seem present. And you seem quite fantastic. And perhaps even feel the, uh, a weight lifted off of your consciousness for a moment. Remember that line from the Avatamsaka Sutta, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. 
As one teacher says, you can stay that way. Or the poet Hafez says, you can stay that way and even bloom. He says, just keep squeezing drops of the sun, the light of attention on your experience. But the fact is, we don't stay here. And to, even though we have six senses, we have eyes, we have ears, we have nose, we have tongue, we have body, we have mind. But I point here, but the mind's not up here. Nobody's ever seen one there. We have this mind, and, or we have the thinking mind, and the feeling mind. And often a thought will arise. And of course, if we notice a thought arising, thoughts were offered today in the instructions. And perhaps you had made a little enough, felt in moments anyway, enough stability, enough continuity of attention where you were able to notice a thought as a thought. To see that it's just another expression of awareness, not separate from the knowing of it. It's just a thought. It's part of the display of our consciousness, which is quite amazing. And if you notice that thought, you saw that it, it didn't have, there was not much to it. It's we, what we sometimes call, what they describe it in the, in some of the Buddhist traditions, they describe thoughts as self-liberating. They just... They burst themselves. But it's also likely because of what we have practiced, our conditioning, that you may not have noticed those thoughts until until a long time later. If those thoughts go unnoticed, they tend to begin to connect with one another. And this is described in the teachings as the, the chain of delusion. Because when, you, when the thoughts arise and they go unnoticed, mindfulness does not rise up to notice those thoughts. They start spreading out into what we call ordinary thinking. And in ordinary thinking, when we are lost in thought, we build, within that little thought world, we build and rebuild and defend and protect and try to heal and try to fix and try to become. We, we somehow uh, get extremely innocently involved in being somebody in that dream world of our thoughts. And that somebody that arises in that dream world of our thoughts because it's all related to thinking, and thinking is mostly related to time, we start to believe that we are a problem that needs to be solved. Any of you ever have that thought? And I ask you, here and now, if you don't consult your memory, is there a problem to be solved? Nevertheless, thoughts arise, spreads out into ordinary thinking, fall into the chain of delusion, and then at a certain point we wake up. But sometimes we can wander a long time confused and it's very easy to then start to live through the, the veil, through the lens of, of a, a mistaken sense of our identity. And if I think that I am, if I begin to view myself habitually 
just because of the innocent practice of getting lost in my ideas, if I view myself as a problem to be solved, if I view myself that there is something wrong with me, then what will I do? I will, of course, from that vantage point, I will seek, I will seek some way of finding relief. Seek some way of of soothing my heart that is disturbed because of course there's a physical corollary to the feeling that I'm not okay and not enough. If I do that long enough, my body, you tell me if this is true or check it out or maybe this, hopefully this resonates with you. My body goes into a state, a state of of tension. I call this state of tension a state of suspended happiness because it, it depends my well-being, my relief depends on solving the problem that I think I have. Fixing the me that I think is wrong. Doing what I need to do and hoping that at the end of the rainbow, I'll feel a sense of relief. And my mind falls into a state, a habitual state, Uh, what the Buddha called, and we've mentioned a few times, bhava, a state of becoming. And then the whole of our orientation, and you can see we live in a world of of bhavas. (laughs) This is bhava world. (laughs) Our whole orientation about well-being and happiness and relief becomes associated with an imagined future that never arrives and obscures the fact that relief and time, in fact, is always and only now. There has never, there is never really a past. It is an idea that we have in an unfolding now, an unfolding present. And we think, which is a miracle and a wonder and a great thing that we can think of what has happened before, but we think it in real time. And then somehow we, in a creative flourish, we throw that thought somewhere behind us and call it the past and then give it a certain reality as though it's a thing that we're moving away from, passing through here on the way to the imagined future. Again, another thought, unborn, it's just a a thought. So the creation of our identity is being someone who has come from the past, passing through here on our way to the future, turning turning for all of us the present unfolding the the living reality the only place where we live turning it into as Eckhart Tolle put it into a means to an end an obstacle or the enemy in some ways just getting through it and associating our happiness with an imagined future. And once our mind moves into associating our relief, happiness, well-being with what's next, we're essentially coloring the present moment with a view, another view, that I can't be happy here. I can't be happy now. In spite of 
all the evidence that we can discover when we're practicing, when we're simply present and literally in almost in any moment of meeting our experience with loving kindness or mindful attention, there's such an evidence field of, I can be happy here. I can be happy now. But our mind says, no but. But what about when I go home? Any of you had any thoughts about that? It's an amazing thing that happens. We have, there's this thought of home. It appears in our mind. And some of the thoughts of home are, are pleasant. So remember that, that feeling tone that we speak about, Vedana, that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It arises with every single experience. It is the springboard to either freedom or delusion. How it is that we navigate this, this field of sensory experience. Part of our sensory experience is mental. And so we have, me- we have thoughts that are pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So a pleasant thought comes about home. Pleasant association. Maybe your own bed or whatever it is. And that produces a little feeling, especially if you're not, not keenly mindful of just the pleasantness of that thought. That thought is followed by a, a feeling of liking. I like that thought. I like that picture. And liking creates a little charge. Creates a, it, it's subtle, but it creates a little tension. And if that is noticed, that's interesting. There's a feeling that comes with liking that is not exactly, not exactly just chilled. It's a feeling of, there's a kind of readiness in it. And then if that readiness, that feeling of liking is not noticed, it's very much followed, it's very lawfully followed by wanting. And wanting the feeling of wanting, which Mark beautifully described last night, craving, that produces a further tension. Start to feel uneasy. You start to feel unsatisfied. It's amazing that a pleasant thought, like the bell ringing, you know, when in the, toward the end of a, a longer sitting, the pleasant association, the secret to happiness, (laughs) the bell ringing, it produces liking and then waiting, wanting, and that wanting, the underlying feeling of wanting that bell to ring is painful. It's actually a state of tension. It, It is a state of suspended happiness. And then that wanting feeling, that tension, needs some kind of release. There's kind of a buildup. And what do we normally do when there is enough buildup of tension? We tend to lift out of of our felt sense of our body being settled. We begin to slowly lose contact with the five physical senses And our mind goes zooming into what Mark spoke about, the proliferation of thoughts, fantasies, uh, thinking about what I'll do at the end of the meal, thinking about, and in that little thought world, that compulsion that is moved by that feeling of wanting, we, we get recreated again as the imagined me going through time, waiting for this damn bell to ring so that I can have relief. And the the bell rings. And the body and mind just go, ah. And because of habit, a long-practiced habit, maybe from immemorial time, and confused perception, distorted perception, 
we begin to believe because of confusion, without clarity of perception, we begin to believe that it was the bell or the object of our desire that gave us the relief that we experienced. But what really gives us the relief is the cessation, the falling away of that identity of the seeker, of the waiter, of the hoper, of the expector, of the impatient one. What we do in, our, in the practice, and hopefully you've been checking this out as we go along, is when we notice that we're in a state of incarnated, We've, we're believing that we're the one that's co- coming from the past, passing through here on our way to our relief, and we see the, our object, we see the end of the rainbow in our mind, that we take our attention away from the end of the rainbow. Take the object, expand beyond the object of our desire, or whatever's irritating you, and notice Notice the state of waiting or wanting. Find your body. Find that embodied experience of the state of mind that you're experiencing. And the very state of mind, unrecognized, that sent you into this proliferation of identity, of insufficiency, that very feeling itself becomes the doorway back to the natural peace and ease that's the, that is the natural peace and ease of, of your natural state. Hopefully you're getting a little taste of getting used to, getting to know and getting used to an experience of yourself that is not simply, not only defined by your history, which is beautiful. Our history is beautiful and has made, has shaped our being. But we are more than our personal history, our story. There is a dimension in our being that is not limited to any history. It is not limited to any uh, of the usual ways that you think about yourself. It has no beginning. It has no end. It has no height. It has no depth. It has no color. It has no shape. has no inside. It has no outside. It is free. It is without without It is beyond your conventional view. The Buddha said there's a field of experience beyond this entire field of matter, beyond this, I forgot the words now, beyond this world of mind. It's neither this world nor another, nor both, neither moon nor sun, neither rising nor passing, uh, or biting or falling away. This is the end of suffering. Mark described last night, this is your task to realize this. So perhaps you're getting a sense of your, at least what to me, what radiates from your mind when it's a little more or less free of its usual preoccupations, the longer you're here, in other words. Each person here is so beautiful, such a beautiful and individual expression of life, filled with everything that's brought you here, but so much more, the light of existence, the the same thing that lives in me lives in you, lives in everyone. As I forgot who it was, was it... William Blake or someone says, who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. 
beyond any narrative, any idea of limitation. It's just such a, um, it's such an insult to reduce it to a thought, to an identity view. Having said that, like I said before, a thought comes, there's this charge. Pretty soon we've, we've fallen into the ordinary thinking, often the chain of delusion, and we have so much more practice believing that we are a problem to be solved. So what we do in our practice is we begin to wake up, use this intrinsic wakefulness that we support with mindfulness, and we begin to make a shift, as we've been doing from the beginning, from being carried along by that stream of identity and identity views, from being caught up in it to noticing it. And then to notice, to include what the impact is on our tender, our tender bodies, on our nervous systems. To recognize when you go into different venues and you see the different identities that, that arise, the different views about yourself, that you see that, that basing your sense of well-being on a view is inherently insecure. We are all, by our nature, by our conditioning, incredibly insecure. What we ordinarily do with our insecurity, with that feeling of, of angst and all its, all its discharges of worry and hope and becoming, and what we often do when we feel a sense of dis-ease is we then feel that there's something wrong. And it's, it usually reinforces a feeling that it's just me. And I think we've all been trying to say in our own way that this is universal. There's something wrong with all of us. <laughs> and the, what's wrong is a case of mistaken identity. It's the excessive identification with our thoughts and then the compounding it with our reaction to our identities. Expecting to find some kind of perfect security for me to be able to be the sage on the stage at home and not just crumble when nobody pays attention. Or when somebody says, you know, you're not who you think you are. You're not such a, over the years, I started this very young, too young. And people you know, put their, in some ways, that gesture of show me and you're too young, I don't respect you. And to the degree that, that I was, that I needed to have some kind of validation, I would, that put me in an inherently insecure place and I would just be so affected by people's praise or blame. And but the longer that I've lived with my insecurities. I don't think I'm any more insecure than anybody else. I'm not less, I'm not more insecure and I'm not less insecure. But what I have developed and what we develop through understanding is a relationship to our insecurity of kindness and mercy. We come to our rescue when we see how clearly we are, how, how vulnerable we are. I used to be very, I, I didn't think I would tell this story, but I used to be incredibly critical of my, um, of my, what I call my greedy nature. You know, when the going got tough for me, I went shopping. And I, I noticed that my closet was more full than my friends. I noticed that uh, whenever I would go on retreats, I would take more stuff than I really needed. 
And then I would, uh, I had the, both the good fortune and the bad fortune to end up in a room at the Insight Meditation Society in a three-month retreat where I spent the, virtually the entire three months doing my sitting and walking inside of a little 11-foot long by 7-foot room with my clothes, which I had way too many of, hanging from a rack on the end of the room. There was no closet. It wasn't big enough for a closet. The little side story is it also happened to be the room where all the, that had the main pipe, drainage pipe, and when it rained, all the water from the roof would come down the pipe and it was deafeningly loud. So it was lots of dukkha in that room, (laughs) needless to say. But what was very interesting about this experience is I just noticed that very often in the cycles of practice that, that move very easily, and people describe them in the groups the last couple of days, it moves from kind of sublime, quiet, to irritation, to where, and what we've noticed over the years is one day every, you're in love with everybody, and the next day you hate everybody, and you're judging everyone, and this is all part of the purification process. And so in, the, in my more aversive days, I would, I would look around and I'd see all my stuff, and i go, oh, God, you're too many stuff. And then the days when I would feel a little un- insecure and uneasy, I would look over at my stuff and think about um, things that needed to be fixed or buying something in a different color. <laughs> you know, the greed mind would, would take over. But then I, as I got farther and farther into the practice period and my mind became much more silent, I also became much more vulnerable, tender, almost like a little baby. And in that, in, that, in that regressed baby state, I started to feel how deeply vulnerable I am and maybe how we are as humans. And everything seemed, in that level of sensitivity, everything pa- seemed kind of painful to me. And one day, it just got excruciating, this vulnerability. And remember, I'm giving the background that I had been pretty critical of myself and up to that point had a pretty tough inner critic ruthless in fact if I didn't perform or do something like I wanted to I would spend the next days holding myself hostage this kind of this inner poem but this day I was so raw and so vulnerable that I I realized uh oh um, I need a hug I need a hug in the worst way. And there was nobody there to hug me. So what I did is I rolled off my cushion onto this little foam mattress I had and the extra pillows that I had, I wrapped them around me and I hugged myself. And I started to cry, which happens. You know, some people wait for the big cry on retreats. It doesn't always happen, and, and it, but it's nice if it does. And, but I cried and cried. And then I looked up at my stuff. I had also put pictures of the tropics <laughs> because it's the middle of the winter. <laughs> IMS put pictures of the tropics to kind of soothe me. I looked up at all my stuff and in a flash of insight, I said, oh, that's how I've been trying to hold myself. In that moment, there was a like a crack in my heart. And this feeling of, of self-compassion came in. And that, that feeling has not, in some ways, not left. But what's even more important is that, that what has followed is more of an understanding that we're all doing, that we're all using so many means to hold ourselves, to soothe ourselves, but mostly the medicine we're taking is actually causing us more disease. So rather than, and what, what, what's really needed, rather than to either fill, the, fill our holes with acquisition or blame or judgment, what's really needed is, is tenderness for these vulnerable beings that cannot 
by nature be secured. I wanted to do a whole little section um, just feeding back to uh, Mark's talk last night. Hold a little bit of the story of the Buddha and I'll just say this very briefly. The Buddha's guru was not a person. The, guru, the Buddha's guru, his teacher, was the reality of life and specifically the reality of impermanence and death. And if we explore our different identities, if we explore our body, if we explore our mood, if we explore anything in this world that can be known, we see that it, it has no security in it. And rather than judge ourselves compound our stress by thinking that we should somehow be tougher than we are. Rather, we should be, as at least the way I phrase it, loving this house that ego builds. Loving, the, loving this tenderness that that is the effect of all of our conditioning. And dedicating ourselves to see through this illusion of a solid individuality, a solid a view of ourselves that can be solid, to come into harmony with, with the selflessness of this body and its moods and its thoughts and its views. And to not spend so much time running to become something, to find a future that never arrives. Here's the Dalai Lama's comment before we begin to shift. When asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. He's, then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. We want to come out of the tangle of this state, this chronic state of becoming that obscures the, the natural happiness and peace of the present moment, that associates our happiness with some other place and time, and reclaim, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, reclaim our heritage. Come home to ourselves, as Derek Walcott says, come home to ourselves, to the stranger who who has loved us all our life, whom we've ignored for another, who knows us by heart. He says, take down the love letters from the bookshelves, the, the notes, the, the images, and the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Don't overlook this vital point of your natural happiness your sufficiency, your home in this living present. Free. From the poet Steve Taylor, entitled Become the Sky. This cage you've been trapped inside for longer than you can remember might seem so sturdy and secure that you don't even dream of escaping anymore like a bird that used to beat its wings, but now just lets them hang limply by its sides. But the bars of your cage are not solid. They're a mirage made up of fears and desires projected by your restless mind 
fueled by the attention you give them. Just for a moment, let your mind be quiet and see how fear evaporates. See how desires withdraw like the claws of an animal that's no longer threatened. Watch the bars melt away and let the world immerse you. Let your mind space merge with the space out there until there is only space without distinction. Stretch your wings and become the sky. Changing positions. Let's just be... All enjoy the precious living present and not seek our home elsewhere. Your attention, enjoy your steps, your your bites, your walk, the rain, And we'll sit again at 7.15. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.